0: Our world is changing. It's time for fresh ideas and new points of view. I'm Jana Peel, Global Head of Arts and Culture at Chanel. And this is Chanel Connects, bringing together creative game changers from film, art, dance, music, and more.
1: Can you hear me, Charles? Yeah,
2: I can. Hi, Emerald. Hey, it's so nice to meet you. It's great
3: to meet you, John.
1: Great to finally meet you, Anika.
2: Thanks for having us.
0: Some are old friends and collaborators. Others are meeting for the first time. All are focused on what matters most and what's coming next. And now we get to listen in. Could you tell where my head was at when you found me? Me and you went to hell, look just to find peace. In this episode, Diane Solway, Head of Arts and Culture Programs at Chanel, moderates a conversation between Kennedy Yanko and Honey Dijon. Kennedy Yanko is a New York-based artist who makes visceral abstract sculptures from paint skin and scrap metal. In 2021, she was artist-in-residence at the Rubell Museum in Miami, where she presented her latest exhibition, White Passing, a reference to her biracial heritage. For the exhibition, Kennedy scoured the scrapyards of South Florida Salvaging mangled shipping containers and combining them with supple, brightly colored paint skins to create remarkable hanging sculptures that play with texture, weight and form. Kennedy connects with DJ and producer Honey Dijon, known for her high energy sets, fusing classic disco with techno and house. Honey grew up on Chicago's South Side. She honed her craft in the underground clubs of New York and is now one of the most in-demand DJs on the scene. Playing major festivals, art fairs and fashion shows around the world, Honey clocks up millions of views for her sets on YouTube, and as a black trans woman in the world of dance music, she is an inspiration to many and aims to be a mirror of affirmation. Here, Honey and Kennedy discuss Sampling the Culture.
3: Kennedy and Honey, it is absolutely thrilling to have you both with us today. Welcome to Chanel Connects. Kennedy, you're here in New York with me. We just walked over from your studio across the street. How would you describe that space that we were just in?
2: Um, My magical land, the studio, my paradise in the basement in Bushwick. Uh, you know, I have, a, I have my sculptures there and I have my little studio area with my table and my couch. And I have a few, a few different studios, one's for paint scans, one's for metal and, and working through the pieces. And then one is where I kind of spend more time observing it. So we were spending time in my observation room.
3: And honey, where are you speaking to us from? Set the scene.
1: Yes, I'm coming to you from Berlin, Germany. I'm currently sitting in my studio slash kitchen table. <laughs> and I have my library in front of me, so it's actually where I do most of my creative work is from my kitchen table. I know it's very cliché, but No, it's, it's wonderful true. and I
3: think everyone around the world has been working from their kitchen table for the last 2 years. Yeah. So. Anyway, it's fantastic to be with both of you. And I know you guys have met briefly in Berlin, but I'm really excited to bring you both together in conversation today. And I wanted to start by asking you both about your early experiences with art and music. And it sounds like you both had very supportive parents. How did you both get started? Honey, do you want to take that first?
1: Wow. Well, it's very funny that you ask that question when I think about the course of my life. My parents had me when they were very young. So they were party parents, basically. (laughs) And (laughs) I think, you know, at the time that I grew up, in a pretty typical African-American household, music was a constant. Music was um, when you went to the grocery store, the radio. Music was when you cleaned the house. Music was when we had dinner together. So music was sort of very much a big part of my childhood and I think that's where I fell in love with music and sharing music with others. It wasn't until I got into my teenage years that I was born or I came of age at the beginning of house music culture in Chicago. House music was born in Chicago and it was a subculture pretty much uh, within African-American queer gay scene and like most subcultures, clothing and art played a big part of self-expression. That's how you identified your tribe, was how you dressed, what record store you shopped at, what club you went to, what music you listened to. So my earliest connection uh, was always through just being part of a subculture. And also, my favorite bands, you know, my icons are Grace Jones and Chardé, and they're both fashion icons, and I would just stare at the album covers while I listened to the albums, and you know, nightclubbing was really inspirational for me because uh, the, the jacket was by Giorgio Armani, and the graphics and photography was by Jean-Paul Good and Chardé, whenever I would see her album covers or You know, one of them specifically was by Helmut Newton. She used to wear a lot of Gaultier. And so fashion and art and photography have always, I've never had a separation or division of any of those things. They all sort of played with one another. And so there was always this sort of obsession um, with all artistic expressions for me.
3: Tell me, I just wanted to go back to your parents for a second, because I know yeah. you mentioned that they were party parents. and
1: they, Yeah, they were party so they, parents, yeah. And
3: they kind of gave you the floor when it came to music. So tell me a little about that.
1: Yeah, so my parents used to have basement parties. And they always started past my bedtime. My mother's going to kill me when she hears this. But, you know, after bedtime, I would sneak and sit on the edge of the stairs and listen to the music and the laughter and the clanking of glasses and it was just becomes this atmosphere that I just sounded so exciting and full of life and vibrant and I think that was my introduction to nightlife (laughs) as a child but also my mom used to let me play records an hour before my bedtime at the beginning of the night and so I think that's where now there's a professional term for that it's called a selector um, but back then I was just sharing music or playing music that I loved and sharing it with my parents. And so I think that was the introduction for my lifelong career as a musician.
3: Kennedy, what about you? What about your parents and your introduction to the world of culture? And, and did you get that early access?
2: Yeah, I did. I did. You know, my uh, I was always around art in some way. My dad's a painter and an architect and my mom's a writer. And so they were very uh you know they were a little different though they they were, they were kind of conservative in a strange way and they were also bohemian in a strange way and there was always some kind of weird balancing act between those two things that they would always ride and I don't know if that's more because of just how they wanted to live their lives and what they were willing to do for their art or if they really cared for their art I always call my dad a lazy painter you know because he just he kind of he goes in there he messes around does a little thing but you know we spent so much time talking about the formal aspects of art and making and the process and you know for me from a really young age painting immediately became um, a place for me to kind of just be able to explore in a way that is fully for myself and in myself and I think as as a younger person I was just always kind of exploring I was studying Man Ray I was studying the Surrealists I was studying the expressionists and i was really interested in kind of like counterculture and rock and roll and i was 12 years old and i'm a fellow midwesterner honey i'm from missouri oh wow we're neighbors Um, yeah yes yes howdy howdy (laughs) (laughs) howdy neighbor So, yeah, I mean, you know, and it is interesting too, kind of being from the Midwest, how, you know, there's so many melding pots of different things, different East Coast, West Coast, all different parts of the world coming exactly. together. And then also kind of coming from uh, six generations on both sides of laborers, you know, there's so there was all right. there's this kind of um, in my in my genetic code, this sense of repetition and creating and making and, and going through that process that that serves me in some way.
1: I would agree with that. I think, you know, coming from Chicago it was such a musically diverse city. You know, you had the blues, you had jazz, you had disco, new wave, house music, industrial clubs, gay clubs, black gay clubs, white gay clubs. And I sort of, you know, my education was so vast because, you know, you sort of move between all these worlds. And 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 I think the Midwest, I, also growing up there keeps me really grounded, um, which I really love. I can sort of, When I go back, everyone is really happy for what I've achieved in my life. But they're also like, but, you know, we still... Don't get too big for your britches, which is really nice. We don't really care. Yeah, they don't care. (laughs) I was like, you know, like my mother, you know, like when I walked in the off white show, she's like, oh, yeah, you look really nice. Uh, Are you coming home for my birthday? You know? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's like, but mom, this is like a big deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm really proud of you, but uh, your sister needs you to call her. So, but,
2: and the other thing too might also be, you know, you've, we've both been doing this. You've been doing this
1: forever. So they've been, they're like, used to you doing it. Right. Like you've got another show. But there were many times when my, when, you know, especially at the beginning when, you know, I wasn't at the level that I am now, I was like, well, um, mom, it's, you know, it's really hard. I'm not sure. Well, you know, you can always get a job with benefits. That was (laughs) always (laughs) a job with benefits conversation. And so, you know, I just think, you know, they just come from a generation where, you know, like my parents were, you know, middle class, so they, you know, they worked. And so... They just wanted to make sure that I was okay.
3: Honey, was there like a particular moment, you know, a record, a party, a moment when you sort of thought, this is actually what I want to do? Even if you didn't specifically know it was DJing, was there something about that world that convinced you that's what I want to do?
1: Well, okay, so... I remember it specifically, and it's one of the most memorable experiences of my life, and it's probably going to sound really strange to a lot of people. But so a lot of the early music house parties were held in Catholic high schools and roller rinks. And I remember I was a dancer before I became a, uh, a DJ. And I just loved to dance. And actually, one of the biggest influence of me, we had this video station in Chicago called MV60, and that's where I saw The New Puritans by Mark Clark dancing to The Fall. Oh, I remember that. Yeah, so this, that was like a that was like oh my god, I want to dance like that. And so I used to go to the to these parties, and now I had to do this free form style dancing based on that, combined with house dancing and all this sort of stuff. And I got so into the music that I had an out of body experience, and I could literally physically see myself. It was very transcendental that I could see myself dancing, like I was above myself, but I could see myself because it, it's the weirdest thing. And I remember saying to myself. I don't know what I'm going to do or how I'm going to do it or what this means, but I want to be a part of this the rest of my life.
3: Wow. That's amazing. I've been,
2: I've been watching your boiler room for i I've been listening to it while I've been in the studio oh, all week. Oh, thank you. And, you know, the one thing that I can't help but embrace is that the, the, the transient state of the way yes. that you a- allow and create space for a, a really c- intense energy.
1: Well, it's so interesting because we're both alchemists in a way. Um, you know, we both take existing materials or I use, in your case, metal or found objects and in my case, other people's music and I put it together in my own way and it becomes something new. I always say that I'm just a vessel for the universe. Um, I have learned, Martha Graham had one of the best quotes that I live by, it's not your place to judge the work, it's your place to do the work. And so, I always feel like I'm an extension and an expression of the universe, so I don't get in its way. I just let it do what it does. And I always say all the hardships as well as the wonderful moments in my life have all played a part in in, in allowing that energy to come through me. I, I don't believe anything of my creative talent I own. I'm a really great editor. I'm a really great sampler. That is my skill set of taking all these different people and inspirations that have inspired me and I put them together in my own unique way. And that's mine. But it's just energy that's going through me now. Then after I'm not here, someone else will have that energy in their unique way. So I really just let the universe do its work. And I'm just glad that I got chosen for this particular expression.
3: We're talking about, in this conversation, sampling culture. And and there is so much crossover here between the two of you. And, you know, Kennedy, you studied theater and yoga, bodybuilding, many kinds of art history. And you've likened the way you work to choreography, um, which I loved. We were just in your studio and you were talking about how there's a certain kind of choreography with the way you use materials, but also mix them, bend them, twist them, make them do what you want them to do. And I wonder... It's just sort of in relation to what Honey was just talking about, if you could elaborate a bit about that.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's it's very interesting speaking with people working in sound specifically within process. There's, there's just so many overlaps um, conceptually in our practice, but I think visually in my work you know i 'm playing with scale and form, and really the how people are absorbing it and taking it in so i 'm constantly challenging if you, your ability to know what the materiality is so for instance, one of my materials is paint so i 'm literally pouring paint and i 'm using paint as a sculptural material, which is not a typical way to use that medium. but when you look at it, you can 't tell if it 's metal if it 's soft if it 's hard or heavy or light so there's so much for me in my interest of kind of going through the process of building, of making, of editing, and and kind of bringing everything together. There's so much about connecting to that receptive energy. And there's also kind of this back and forth between the metal and the skin and myself. So there's always this dialogue that's happening with these two other materials.
3: Uh, can you talk a little bit, just for our listeners who are new to your work, Could you talk a little bit about paint skins? Yes. Uh,
2: So in 2009, I did a show called Wu Wei, which means to allow. And I was pouring paint onto canvas. And I was getting these beautiful fractal-like details from the way the paint would interact with itself. And in that moment, I realized that the medium will show me where I need to go next. Because I was getting these miraculous details by almost removing myself, in a way, from the work. So... The paint skin's developed over a series of ten years, and it's just a—it's a process of pouring, pouring paint. It's all latex-based, which is a really fascinating material because once it's shaped and formed, it has this porous quality to it, and it kind of slumps and it adheres to itself and to the metal. So there's this moment of inception. So my work has always had this sense of expansion and con. And contraction, and and for me, that language or that idea or that feeling is really the impetus of the signaling for me. If I expand, it's a yes, and if I contract, it's a no. And that's kind of how I'm navigating or using some kind of criteria for myself as a as a maker.
3: Honey, I'm just following on that. You know, you're also mixing materials, you're mixing sounds, musical textures, mm-hmm. you're kind of choreographing the energy of the space and the night and reading the room at the same time. Uh, mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about how, how you feel when you're DJing, what's going through your head? How are you adjusting the work to the room? Or do you do that?
1: What am I thinking about depends on the energy of the room and the connectivity with the audience. I like I'm a proper New York DJ where we play from the opening to the end and you're storytelling basically and and you're setting the room up, you, you're getting the energy correct depending on where you are. And I love that part of the process because I get to sort of bounce around and be very playful with music and with soundscapes. And speaking about alchemy, if you've ever been to one of my sets, I love effects. I love reverb, delay, echo. You know, that comes from, you know, putting drama and also mm-hmm. space and have a, putting a lot of spatial... Silence in music. Silence is just another tool to use within music. So for me, what I'm I'm trying to do is to just letting each song have a thread and an emotion, and it's it's basically like sex, really. You know, there's there's the courting, and then there's the foreplay, and then we get into a little bit of heavy situations and then we then there's the ebb and flow then we bring it down and then we bring it back up and you it, it's it's not a destination but it's more of just it's tantric basically you know it's not about the orgasm it's about the pleasure and so what i try to do when i'm djing is just really connect with people on a very primal level Tension and release is a big thing for me, building, 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 and then giving that release. Um, Sort of the same thing that you were saying earlier, Kennedy, contracting and expanding, I call it tension and release. And, you know, I try to uh, have as much tension before the release, and then... Letting that release happen—it's euphoric. It's sexual. It's energetic. And then, then you start to tease again. It's fun for me. It's like it's like really great sex.
2: <laughs> I, I've always felt that. <laughs> I've always felt that creative energy is maybe one of the closest forms to spiritual energy. And and when I think about you know the physical expression of my work, it's almost like capturing that exact moment that you're talking about in
1: stillness. Right. Yeah. You know, getting back to the question of what am I thinking about? It's really, I try not to think. And that's one of the things I love about being a live performer is that this moment is the only moment we're going to have to do this. And I think there's something really beautiful about being so present in that moment.
3: Right. Because like Mm. any live performance, it can't be repeated.
1: It can't be repeated.
3: You are either there or you miss it, even if it's recorded. And you're also forced into it.
1: You're also forced. You're kind of
2: put into that state versus kind of like having to get your brain into the present.
1: Can I ask you a question? So about your pain skins, was this an accidental discovery? Because I find that there are no such things as mistakes. There's just discoveries.
2: Definitely accidental. Definitely one of the best things that ever happened to me.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, so getting back to your boiler room that you talk about. Yes. So that day was very special. Special in being I had been in Australia for two weeks. It was an intense, grueling two-week tour. And it was the last gig on on the tour. And the flight was late. The car to pick me up was 45 minutes late. I literally had, I was literally went straight from the airport, straight to drop my bags off and was thrust in front of 4,000 people. Just thrust. And my entire life showed up in that one hour. Like every lesson that I learned showed up in that one hour. That's not my favorite DJ set of mine. I can go back and look at 50,000 mistakes within that set, but it connected with so many people And I realized from that moment on that it's not about being perfect. You just always have to keep going in the process because you never know. You just never know within your creative work what's going to stick and what's not going to stick. And it was the one hour out of everything I've done in my life that changed for me. Hmm. So I learned in that process that um, not to get in its way. And there are no such things as mistakes, just discoveries.
3: But also it's interesting that you know you had done all the work, and so you're really in that moment of having to just do rather than to think about it. You had already yeah. done it, so you were just relying on, on what you know and, yeah. how, and how you do that so well. So it was just, I think that's always interesting when you're sometimes forced into those situations where you just have to literally perform. Yeah. What's the craziest night you've ever DJed? Paint the scene for us.
1: The craziest night that I ever, well, I've had a lot of crazy nights. Does it feel
2: crazy to you? Um,
1: I think, I have to say, playing at Panorama Bar in Berghain is probably some of the best highlights of my life because it's really for music lovers and it's a, it's a den of inequity. Is that what they call it? A very carnal, lustful,
3: yes, <laughs> free
1: place. And that's why I love it so much. And, you know, one of the things that I I would have to say seeing women dancing, topless and freely sexually free without worrying about the male gaze or heterosexual norms i think women when they're in spaces always have to worry about male aggressive energy and and one of the great things about panorama bar is that it's a queer space and it's sort of the reason that that the the door scene is so legendary about people not getting in is because they just want to make sure that the right people are there so that no one gets in anyone's way as far as expressing themselves. And I found it really beautiful to see women so free with their bodies. And it was just really awesome to see people, all people just being free and and celebratory and it was, you know, they put a lot of fog in the room and there's lots of strobes going and most of the colors of the strobes are very sexual orange and red and, you know, it, it, it was, I remember like nine in the morning but all the shutters were closed and as soon as, if you've ever been to Panorama Bar, if you've been partying for 13 hours and the shutters comes up and the sunlight comes in, it's like euphoria. Um, so I would have to say those were some of the most incredible DJ experiences that I've had is just seeing people be able to express themselves without fear and shame and to just celebrate who they are unapologetically.
3: Kennedy, I know you spent three years with the Living Theater. Four years. Kennedy's ring for, uh, <laughs> which is New York's oldest experimental theater group. And you worked with the founder Judith Molina early in your career when you first moved to New York. What did that experience teach you about building a community? I, I
2: think to begin with, it taught me a lot about myself in relationship to others. So, as a painter, it's such a private, isolated world, which is. Not my practice, now. My practice is very different working in sculpture. But at that time, you know, I, I don't think that I had been properly socialized in a lot of ways, just from maybe the way I was brought up. But, you know, I, it, it taught me to, how to support people and how to make space for people. It taught me how to support myself in spaces like that, too, when I didn't know how to. But I think more than anything, being in a commune that was specifically focused on incubating ideas and building art versus, you know, making a farm or something like that, it was fascinating because we had so many different kinds of minds there. We had writers and music producers and actors and performers, and and it was just this kind of enclave of people really pushing for things that don't make sense in the the constitution of this world that we've been given. So I think that that showed me the power of a collective energy.
3: Were there any sort of formative experiences with the Living Theatre that that you remember in terms of other people who came through or other exposure to... Other interesting artists? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, everybody was
2: there. Al Pacino paid our rent. Yoko Ono helped with our rent. I mean, uh, who else would come? By? I met Rick Lowe at the Living Theater, who's a wonderful artist. I met Penny Arcade, who's a legendary mm-hmm. performer from oh, Lower Penny. East Side. Yeah, yeah. So it was it was this true Lower East Side, New York. And, and all the old school people were, were still showing right. up to the Living Theater. So, I mean, every corner had a different thing going on, you know.
1: I, I, I miss the eccentric New Yorker.
2: <laughs> it's still, no, no, you know what? I, it's still a real thing. I mean, it's, it's still there. There's, it's here, but it's maybe yeah. not the same. It's just, it's, I just find that I personally too, I have like a, a resistance to being able to be open to what might right. be the
1: newer version of that. Right. You know, cause it, well, you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I'm not looking for the newer version of, of, of that New York. Um, that's one of the reasons why I moved to Berlin cuz I didn't want to be one of those New Yorkers. Oh my god, it was so great. 20 you know, I didn't want to be that because New York is constantly evolving and and New York will always be New York in whatever incarnation that is. And um, you know, what is now, what is next in New York, you know, the new generation coming up, especially in the queer scene is so exciting. And and I'm interested to see what this new New York will be. There's still so many amazing New Yorkers still there. And so when you spoke about Penny Arcade, it just brought up so many memories of so many amazing people that I've come into contact along the way. That are still, Like Lady Bunny's still in New York, and Taboo is still in New York. And, mm-hmm. But you're right, you know, it's about what's now. And I'm so excited to see what New York, especially post-pandemic, becomes.
3: I just wanted to talk a little bit about now. And Kennedy, could you talk a little bit about your exhibition, White Passing, at the Rubell Museum in Miami, which is a wonderful, fascinating show where you really pushed yourself in new ways. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what de- you were
2: exploring. Yeah, delighted to. Um yes, the, the building of this work and this process um, internally has been... Uh, Really challenging, really interesting for me. So, you know, when I was, when I went to the Rubel Residency to build that work, um, I had the whole old museum. So it was the old DEA building, which was over thirty thousand square feet to work in.
3: So this is an old DEA building yeah. that was turned into a museum, mm-hmm. and. I had never had that kind of space
2: before. I never had a forklift. I never had a scissor lift. And when I was down there, you know, for me at that time, I was really just trying to make the work happen. I'd never worked at that scale. So there was a lot of nuanced engineering that I was kind of learning and figuring out in real time. And at the same time, I've been writing this graphic novel for the last uh, year and a half, and it's called indelible fluidity. And it goes through different parts of my life and different obstacles within my personhood. And then also kind of like genetically how I'm connecting to how information is coming through genetically in different ways. And it's it's the, the, main, the main thing in the book is showing that adversity is the conduit to consciousness. That when you're faced with an obstacle, it's what causes you to go deeper within yourself to understand how to navigate that space more thoroughly. And... I had to interrogate, you know, my personhood and my identity in a way that I never had before. Looking at my skin, looking at my eyes, looking at my hair, what it means to be a white passing biracial person raised by a black American mother and a white American father. And and kind of like how I'm contributing and what kind of space I'm taking up and what kind of space I'm creating for other people. And I think one of the most fascinating things in building this work is that just understanding even more deeply about how particular and odd and nuanced my perceptual experience has been as how I'm understanding the world and how the world is understanding me. And I think in my work, I'm always looking to see how I can challenge that lack of sight and that lack of vision. And I'm, I'm always interested in encouraging people and challenging myself. And and being able to more deeply understand vision as a full body experience versus something that I understand.
3: Can you also talk a little bit about the work that you created for that show? Because I know you were working on a much bigger scale. Than you had ever worked yeah, in before. Yeah, so
2: I had set a couple weeks aside for scavenging for metal. So basically, with my process, I spend um, a lot of time just hunting for the materials that I'm looking for. So we're driving around, and I I found this amazing shipping container that I'd been wanting to I'd been wanting to work with this material for years because the spines of the shipping containers are really structural and strong, and then the other metal on it is this kind of malleable, soft, flimsy metal that has this incredible expression that you can only find from the thinner steels. It gets these beautiful curls and wrinkles and, and it had these wonderful colors on it. So the biggest one stands, I mean, over, I, I think over 20 feet tall. Um, And I used over a hundred gallons of paint for the paint skins. Wow. So in, in having that kind of space to work in, I was able to scale up on in every way. And I learned a new technique that has significantly changed the way that the skins are expressing themselves.
3: You, you've talked a lot about finding metal for your sculptures in these sort of wild-sounding scrapyards across the U.S. Could you tell us a little bit more about those expeditions? And, and you know, are they dangerous? Or are they what? What? What does that entail? Um, well, it all started. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but really, no, no. I think it all really did start from a really young age, and and and. My painting practice is uh, has always been an action action painting. So that means that I'm responding in the moment. I'm working quite aggressively, and it's very physical and automatic. So when I'm looking for the materials, you know, I'm I'm involving myself in completely uh, a very different environments. So while I'm going to the yards. It's me and Jewel and we're in the sprinter truck and we're driving around. We go to Philly and Baltimore. And so on the metal, I don't know if you've ever been in a metal yard before. No, but tell, tell me what, like
3: <laughs> just what that expedition is it's like.
2: It's basically like walking into the apocalypse. You know, you're standing, you're walking into this space. There's 30 feet tall of metal. There are these huge dinosaur mas- machines, you know, picking metal up with a magnet and throwing it up onto the, to the pile. And then there's all these cars that are unloading metal. And, you know, half the time that I'm going to these places, Places, I'm not allowed to go into them because it's, I'm, you know, I, I can be a, a liability to the yards and every once in a while, you know, I find a good one and someone who's excited about seeing something different that they haven't, you know, all day long. And, and I love being able to kind of just dig and look. And most of the time I can only, you know, get things that are around the edges because it's, it's kind of dangerous to get in there. But sometimes I have, you know, guys that will help me with the machines and a lot of the, the main manipulation of the materials happen there in real time. So there's one machine, I can't think of the name of it, but it kind of crushes it like a large Tyr- Tyrannosaurus Rex. And it's so fascinating as I've continued this relationship with metal to understand it as this soft thing that when I heat it up, it becomes liquid or when I, I can pinch it and it almost breaks as like a twig. And, and I, it, for me in, that, in those moments, everything that I know is over. And the adrenaline of being in the yard and to get to experience that and absorb all that, that's really kind of what keeps me going and that I enjoy.
3: Sounds amazing. You know, honey, I'm thinking also that as Kennedy's describing these kind of treasure hunts and, you know, looking for those elements, mm-hmm. but I'm curious how you source material and if record shops or other vintage kinds of stores, what are some of the other sources that you're looking at?
1: You know, the thing about being a working DJ is that it's constant research. It's constant navigation. One of the great things about living in Berlin is that there's still a very big culture of vinyl. Um, And so people, there's lots of secondhand um, resales of record collections. Um, There's an e-commerce site called Discogs, where you can pretty much find any record that you've been looking for in your life there, um, a lot of times it would be, I'll be shopping and I'll hear a disco record and i am like, oh my God, I forgot about that. Or, right. or I'll be, you know, I go everywhere from YouTube to record shops, to promos, to my own record crates, to memories. To friends making things specifically for me, I actually have um, a, a, an engineer that works with me that can make edits for me on the fly. You know, I, I recently did a remix of David Bowie's "Let's Dance," and that mix was inspired by hearing one of my favorite DJs at a club. And so, you're talking about a lifetime of music that I'm pulling from,
3: it, right?
1: And and it's and it's, it's
3: all filtered through experience, right? Because and so it's much all about-
1: th- yeah, you know, I didn't have the words for for my art so someone said it was experiential. And so a lot of times the research comes literally just from... Uh just digging, and then I'll be asleep, and, and something will pop in my head, or and then I'll be on this mad scavenger hunt for something that you know, maybe a riff or a vocal. and I call my friends, or so it, it's constant research. And I recently started collecting seven inches about three or four years ago because everything now is moving so digital. And even I wanted to ask you, how do you feel about NFTs? How do you feel about inanimate? artistic things because in one way I can see the appeal of it, but I feel like, no, this isn't how we should experience. The only, you know, art should be physical for me.
2: Well, I don't think.
1: For me. I don't think NFTs have anything to do with art (laughs) (laughs) to begin with. I just want to hear your
2: opinion on that. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. As someone that works in the physical realm. I guess my feel on it is that, you know, it's a new another parallel industry and community versus right. a competition or a replacement. And with the NFTs, I honestly think that artists were kind of, like, used to popularize the, the idea of it as an application more than as an art thing, just right. in my experience in making them or, under, or right. kind of, like, understanding that world a little bit more. Right, It's an asset. It's a
3: money thing. To what degree do you guys think about how, to, how you present yourself and how you present yourself as being part of your practice?
1: You want to go first with that? I was just going to say the same to you. I was to, <laughs> I,
3: I'll, I'll start.
1: I'll I mean, start. what do you I'll want start. people to know about with your work, about you? What I mean, you, I, I, mean th-
2: I think, well, my, that's the thing with me is that, you know, my work is really kind of the amalgamation of my life experience as in, in each different iteration that I'm creating it in. When I think about my work, I think of it really as my higher self and really as the fullest expression of myself. And I and I really feel that it's much more sophisticated than I am as a person. I'm right. trash, <laughs> I really am, to be honest, I'm trash. I learn a lot from my work. And so, you know, for me, it's always about how am I interacting? How are you, how am I feeling while I'm talking with you? How am I feeling while mm-hmm. I'm looking at this? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think that that translates Into the work. And I really believe that you can feel it breathing in front of you from that.
3: Honey, what about you? What do you want people to know about you listening to one of your sets when they're in the room with you?
1: Uh, I would probably say I'm a proponent of joy and I'm sort of a griot in the sense of the word. So I hope people, when they come to hear me play, because, you know, I'm, I, for many years, I wasn't hired because I played too eclectic. You know, I would jump from disco to techno to this to that and the other, and people mm-hmm. couldn't put me in a box. And now I'm celebrated for that because I, that's how I experienced it. I think most people present their work the way they were sort of exposed to something the first time. And so I hope the way I'm presenting myself as an artist is just basically a continuation of an art form, or I believe to be an art form, that has been lost. Um, and especially in, with all of this digital innovation, you know, we have all the technologies for music to basically mix itself. And so I, I try to still present music in a way that is still rooted in that time. Um, because I don't want it to get lost. It was too incredible. I experienced so many incredible things. So, and also sharing. I think that's another important word, just to share. And and um, so that's what I hope people take away from when they come to see me perform.
3: I'd love to wrap things up by looking ahead to one of your exciting upcoming plans. You're okay. going to be working with Grace Jones. Oh, my God. As part of her curated <laughs> festival meltdown oh at London's South Bank Center. So let's just talk about Grace Jones for a second. Casually. <laughs> so what does Grace mean to you and how did this come about?
1: Oh, my God. You know, I... I'm still speechless because I'm such a fan. First and (laughs) foremost, I'm a, you know, I'm a fan that gets to work with someone that has been truly inspirational for me. But if I think about Grace and, and sort of what she's, she's liberated me and I have this thing called mirror of affirmation and like, you don't know that you can be something if you can't see it. And Grace was combined theater and performance art and fashion. And here was this dark skinned woman that wasn't traditionally femininely beautiful, but were so strikingly beautiful. And she broke down gender norms and what it meant to be masculine and feminine. And then you had this Jamaican woman singing Edith Piaf, La Vie Rose. And so for me, it's a full circle moment. And I, I often joke like, okay, after this, I can retire. There's still a lot of work to do.
3: <laughs> what can we expect from your performance with her? Or your appearance with her, rather. Well,
1: first of all, I'm just worried about my appearance as Grace, so I have to really be on point. (laughs) So the first thing is, like, what am I going to wear?
3: And have you solved it?
1: Oh, yeah, I've solved that riddle. (laughs) I have to be correct for that one. I've solved that riddle.
3: Thank you so much to both of you. This has been a wonderful opportunity to talk to you both and bring you both together. Honey, I think... Kennedy and I will see you soon in London. Yes, awesome.
2: Yes, wonderful. Thank you guys so much. This was really a pleasure.
1: Thank you so much. I hope it was thrilling as a roller coaster ride. Invigorating. As always,
3: <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> Thank you for listening to Chanel Connects. Don't forget, you can follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, or your favorite podcast app. You can also listen back to Season 1, featuring conversations between Pharrell Williams and Ez Devlin, Kira Knightley and Lulu Wang, and many more.